Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. The word Genesis really means beginnings uh, or origins or foundations. Genesis gives us kind of the, the first of many things. Uh, it gives us the first of creation. It gives us the first marriage. It gives us the first sin. It gives us the first encounter with Satan and temptation. It gives us the first murder with Cain and Abel. It gives us the, the first covenant uh, to Noah. It, there's a lot of first in the book of Genesis, kind of showing us the origin of some of the things we live with every day and we see every day. We see murder every day. We see marriage every day. We see temptation every day. And Genesis uh, wants to show us the origin and where all this stuff kind of began. And uh, when we come to Genesis 19, we get another first. We get the first time that the word brimstone is brought up in the Bible. Uh, the first time in my translation, it's sulfur. Uh, the first time we get kind of a fire and brimstone, the Lord rains down wrath on a society, on a people, on these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in Genesis 19. But if you weren't here last week, last week was preparation for chapter 19. Last week uh, in chapter 18, which belongs to chapter 19, we see that the Lord is a fellowship uh, God, that he's a God of love and relationship, that he's a God of power and might, that he's a God who, who eats lunch uh, with uh, his covenant partners. Uh, this is a God who dines with Abraham and a God who listens to the intercession of Abraham when Abraham realizes that God is on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah to absolutely wipe it out with fire and brimstone. God proves in chapter 18 that he is willing to practice mercy for a few over and against his wrath on many. That he is perfectly willing to save the many for the few whom he has mercy for. Um, but now we come to chapter 19, and that's done, and, and the, the angels have left Abraham, and they're going to go investigate Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's just read through it and walk through this chapter together. Genesis 19, and starting in verse 1. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. If you have a pen, I would encourage you to underline the word evening. We noted that the same angels, along with the pre-incarnate Christ, or Yahweh, also came to the doorway of Abram, or Abraham, in chapter 18, verse 1. In fact, just move your eyes over to chapter 18, verse 1. You see that? The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And so when God visits Abraham at Mamre, at his tent, it's the middle of the day. It's the height of light of the day. But when the two angels leave Abraham and they go to Lot, it's at the gate of Sodom, and it's no longer day, it's night. You get that. Um, 
Obviously, this is historic. That's the way it really was. This is a 24-hour period of time. This story begins at lunchtime with Abraham, and it moves into evening with Sodom, and finally to the next morning when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by the wrath of God. But listen, this stuff is not on accident. These historic facts are, have spiritual meaning. Abraham is clearly walking in the light because God is the light. Lot, even though he believes in God, he is walking in darkness. Lot is a believer. This is clear from the Bible. The Bible teaches us that Lot is a righteous man. 2 Peter chapter 2 tells us that. But even though he's a believer, he's like many believers in this church and in this country. Having more fellowship with darkness having more fellowship with the world than having fellowship with God. Make no mistake about that. This chapter is more for believers than it is unbelievers. This chapter is more for God's people than it is for a secular society. And a lot of Christians and preachers want to come to chapter 19 and say, let's tell the world. Let's tell the world that God's going to rain down fire on them. Let's tell the world that God's going to bring a shotgun. That's how we say it in Oklahoma. He's going to blow some wicked people out of the water. But the real message is for Lot. The real message is for believers who believe in God, but they're more, they take darkness more seriously than they do God. They take darkness and sin more seriously than they do righteousness. They explain away their lukewarm faith and their compromise. Oh no, this is for you and me, church. This is for you and me. This is for all us preachers who get up and say big words but live small lives. This is for all of us preachers who get up and manipulate the crowds for our own profit and our own gain. And this is for all the members of the churches across our country who are trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot with God. And they're dwelling in the gates of darkness. There are the angels. This is for the lots. Lot's dwelling in darkness. We ask ourselves, why would God judge a society or a city or a country or an empire or a nation? Why would God judge our nation? The ultimate reason is because of spiritual darkness. Sodom is spiritually dark. There can be no better description of our time and our age and our society than just darkness. Everybody say it. Just say darkness. There's America. Darkness. Confusion. Running into walls. Not knowing which is the right way. Going against the grain. And I think about our culture and the culture I've been raised in. The culture that's fed me on its poison and its pollution. Not environmental, but spiritual pollution. I think of confusion and I think of darkness. And many of you have been brought up on that same air of toxin. Darkness. We thought that we could have love without the author of love. We thought that we could Walk in the light without the creator of light. We thought we could figure out life without the creator of life. That's darkness. Sodom going its own way. We don't need God. 
We don't need a creator. That's what's sitting at that gate when these angels come to investigate whether these people are going to take God seriously or not. And that's what will happen at the end of time. Make no mistake about it. Jesus in Luke chapter 17 says that the coming of the Son of Man will be just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And everybody will be drinking and everybody will be marrying and everybody will be having a great time when the Son of Man comes on the clouds and he arrives and investigates. Did you take God seriously? Jesus said, I will judge this world. I'll make Sodom and Gomorrah look like a day at Disney World. I'll make Sodom and Gomorrah seem like a little kitty park. But Lot does the right thing, right? Lot does the right thing. He welcomes them. He comes to these visitors and he bows him his face to the earth. It's nighttime in Sodom. And so Lot has some advice and an invitation. Look at verse 2. Lot says, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. It's interesting that when Abraham invited them to his tent to eat, they were more than happy to go. But with Lot, these angels are like, I don't know about you. But Lot in verse 3 says, he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread and they ate. It's interesting that Lot... Strongly encourages them to come. No, you gotta come. You gotta come over to my house. You gotta come over to my house. Right now, you gotta come. And we ask ourselves, why is Lot so emphatic to get them into his house? And I'll tell you why. Because Lot is well aware of what happens in Sodom at night. He's well aware that if these guys are outside at Sodom at night, bad things are going to happen to them. See, Lot might be satisfied as a believer living in the world and being of the world, but for other people, he warns them, oh, you better come in because this world's going to hurt you. Verse 4, but before they lay down, the men of the city... Men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Do you remember in chapter 18 when Abraham was praying for this city and he said, Please, Lord, if, if there's ten righteous, if there's just ten righteous for their sake, save them. Don't judge these cities if there's ten righteous. And verse 4 clearly indicates... That when the angels go to investigate, that they don't find one to the last man. In fact, both young and old. That word for young in the Hebrew stands for, get this, watch this now. Little boys in the night. Little boys to the oldest of men. Little Boys and old men, they surround the house. And here's their request, verse 5. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. How many of y'all have a NIV at home or with you today? 
NIV translation right. And it gets it right. In the NIV, it's like, so that we may have sex with them. That's the right translation. These men, little boys, old men, and everybody in between are knocking on the door. And they're saying, we want to see those visitors. We want to have sex with those visitors. We say, well, our, our society is not like that at all, man. We, you know, we, there's nothing that would happen in our society that would be like this. Beloved, you need to wake up and open your eyes to what's going on right now in our country. You need to wake up and realize that little boys are being taught to have sex with other boys. You need to realize that little girls are being molested all the time. And guess what one of the greatest targets of pedophiles are? Oh, the church. Because we're so naive. We sit in our little religious kind of coded environment and act like everything can still be so pretty. We live in a very sick and perverted culture. That is the way it is. One in four girls get molested in her life. Did you know that? And you know how many men I've met as a pastor? When I was in Oklahoma, firemen and policemen and, and the toughest of men, the strongest of men, and they pull me to the side after lunch and they take me for a drive and they say, let me tell you what happened to me when I was a little boy. And my jaw would drop in the car as I learned about an uncle or a grandfather or a daddy or a, a neighborhood friend. Old men teaching young boys what to do. You say, that's right, that's right. Well, so this is not talking about... The, the fact that, that homosexuality is wrong. It's talking about the fact that homosexual rape is wrong. That, that non-consenting homosexual acts is what God is judging here. Oh, no, 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 no. Now, hang Bye. You could take your Bibles. You could go to Leviticus chapter 18 and read verses 22 and 23. These verses are very clear about sexuality and what God thinks it says here in verses 22 and 23 you shall not lie with a male as with a woman i didn't look that up in the niv maybe the niv gets that one right too you shall not have sex with a male as as with a woman it is an abomination and you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. That word perversion means to twist something that is good. It means to take something that God gives you and to twist it and to turn it and to form it and to shape it like we want it to. Here's how we pervert sex. Let me tell you all the ways in the Bible that we pervert sex. We take a good gift from God and we twist it when we practice let me give you a, a new F word for your vocabulary, fornication. 
That means having sex with a woman or a man that you're not married to. Another way that we pervert sex is when we practice adultery. That means when you're married, you have sex with somebody that you're not married to. That's perversion. Everybody say perversion. You're twisting what God has given you as a gift. Having sex with an animal, I think everybody would say, that's perverted. But right here, Leviticus, it says that homosexuality is perversion. You're like, well, that's the Old Testament. That's Mosaic law, man. That's Levitical Mosaic law. Go in your New Testament to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verses 26 and 27. Paul, clearly, he's writing the book of Romans from the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth is one of the most, oh my gosh, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah for sure. Lots of sexual permissiveness. You can do whatever you want in Corinth. Paul's looking out the window of his motel when he writes this letter to Romans. And he says in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Turn over one book to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And every time we come around to sex in the Bible, I will take you to these same passages because I really want to educate Christians on what the Bible says. says. It's very clearly because people are going to say, well, the Bible doesn't say that. It's like, no, it does. And let God be true and every man a liar, beloved. That's the safest place to be. Take God more seriously than you do the world or your friends or your family or your brother or your sister. Side with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 11. Or do you not know, he says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor even men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now everybody says, well, see, it has thieves in there too. Right, so what's your point? That's your own clever way that you're trying to work around that homosexuality is not that bad? Are you trying to say that stealing's not that bad? Now, it's very clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ can change anybody. Can I get an amen? And that's what he says. He says, you're a church composed of former thieves, former adulterers, former homosexual folks. Jesus has washed you. He's changed you. He's changing you even now. There is no unpardonable sin mentioned in that list. 
The only unpardonable sin is forever denying that Jesus is your Savior. That's the only one. Jesus died on the cross for our heterosexual sins of adultery and our homosexual sins of homosexuality. Amen? But that doesn't make it right. In fact, that makes it more wrong to me. If Jesus had to die for it, then I should hate it all the more. If it's what sent my Lord and Savior to die, I should hate it just like I, die. I hate every lust that I've ever had that sent Jesus to the cross. I hate every lie that I've ever said because it's why Jesus died. And if Jesus died for something, I should hate it because it killed the Lord and Savior, the Son of God in the flesh. I, I, just, get, I, I just get so worked up on this because I, I just... This sentimental theology is killing me, man. And I have to give it to Jesus every day so I'm not forever embittered by it. I was on Twitter the other day, a mistake. And on Twitter, they have these little things you can find out what's trending. And, and what was trending one day on, on Twitter, the, the top trend was being a Christian. Hashtag being a Christian. You can look this up. And I was excited. I was like, oh. Being a Christian is trending on Twitter. This is so I get really excited. I'll go, and I hit on the, because you can hit on the little trend thing, and you can see what everybody's saying by that hashtag. If you don't know Twitter, you can, you can see what everybody's saying about being a Christian. And I was really excited because I was going to get to hear Christians talk about being a Christian on Twitter. That is so cool. And I latched onto it, and I was devastated everybody say devastated oh my gosh because all it was was christians love homosexuals christians love all people like trying to trying to apologize for the fact that we have a god who's laid out some boundaries for what it means to be a believer so if you're on twitter tell the truth You see, when we come back, go back to Genesis 19, when we come back to this verse, verse 5, when these men want to have sex with these visitors, they want to have sex with angels of God. That is a bad idea. In verse 5, you see, the point is this. Most societies, both in biblical times and in our times, said that if consenting men wanted to have sex with each other, that's okay. And most societies back then and now say that if most consenting women want to have sex together, that's okay. God is the only one, and the Hebrews and the Christians have been the only ones who have led the, the idea that it should be between a man and a woman and only in the context of marriage. Therefore, you've got to really know God to believe this stuff. But the point that the author is making is that even for secular, godless societies, this is absolutely over the top everybody can agree no matter what your position is on sexuality everybody can agree that Sodom and Gomorrah is now ready to be judged homosexuality is bad between consenting adults it's bad is what God says but the whole world says that rape homosexual rape is really bad 
Genesis 19, let's pick it up in verse 6. This is when it gets, I mean, the weird gets really bizarre. Lot went out to the men. So they're saying, hey, bring out the men to us. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. I, honestly, I have no idea. I, I don't even know what's happening here. You know what I'm saying? And I've tried to figure out why is law. <laughs> I mean, I, I just don't understand. He's saying, basically, let me give you my daughters. You can have sex with them, but don't do anything to these guys here. The only thing I can imagine is this, is that he realizes that these are angels, and, and he's trying to put God before everything else. That's the only way I could justify it. But he's clearly making a very bad mistake. The only thing I can say is, is Lot has, is so, you know, Lot, he's a believer, you know, but, but Sodom has been sown into him. He's so tied up in this culture. And now he's trying to reverse trends last minute, and he doesn't know what to do. Outside of that, I, can't under, I, can't, I cannot understand, and I haven't found anybody else who's given a good explanation of the daughter's thing. Some people say that in the ancient world, hospitality was such a huge thing that you would actually be willing to sacrifice your family's needs before your visitor's needs. Okay, I understand that, but I don't think anybody understands that you put your daughter's sexuality on the line here. No. The only thing I can say is that Lot is really jacked up. Despite his hospitality to the angels, despite his efforts, he is still a really jacked up guy. Go to verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they're not taking Lot seriously at all. It's interesting. Nobody's going to take Lot seriously. Lot has no influence at all over anybody in any significant way. Lot is a joke. Now, he's clearly a leader of the community because he was sitting at the gate. And you can only sit at the gate unless you're a judge or, or a, a leader, uh, uh, some kind of, of, of important person. But when it came to ultimate spiritual matters, Lot was a joke. He had worldly success, but no spiritual influence. He had a house and a gate. But he had no witness. And when he starts trying to tell people about God things and, and, and not to do and to do the right thing, nobody takes him seriously. He spent too much time compromising his life. They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. They're literally rushing Lot and rushing this house and... Verse 10, the angels are going to take care of business now. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were themselves out groping for the door. Love this. Like, like the angels start doing force stuff. You know what I mean? They're like, you know, and they blinded and brings Lot in and they start taking over.
Then the men said to Lot, have you anywhere else here? Have you, have you anyone else here? And sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. We ask ourselves, why would God bring brimstone to the world or to a society? Why would God bring wrath? Not only because of spiritual darkness, but because of social injustice. We see it in that word outcry. Outcry is used by the prophets to, uh, uh, to present the idea that uh, society has gotten so bad that it creates social injustice against widows and orphans and the poor and the oppressed. That uh, social injustice is when people are treated unfairly and aren't given what they deserve or given their equal rights. That there's inequity in the playing field of People. Jeremiah talks about it. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, there's many places I could take you to, but it points to the outcry of people, the screaming because of all of the, the abuse, all the broken relationships, all of the betrayal, all of the, all of the, the hurting of people and the rape and the, and the sexual abuse and everything is kind of an outcry to God. God, help me, help us do something, judge this world world. You know, it's only in the safety of our suburbs and our farms that we could ever come up with a theology of a God who doesn't judge the world. It's not too much outcries out there in those farms, those small towns, small town values. But you go to the south side of Chicago, you go to some of those nations in Africa, you go to some of those places where bandits raid whole villages and rape the women and steal the dogs and steal the last piece of meat that that little village has. You go to some of these places in most parts of the world, and let me tell you something. There's an outcry, and the outcry from these people is, is there a judge? Why is God a God of wrath? Because this world is a world of crying and weeping because of injustice. And when you become an evangelist or a witness to these people, one of the first things you got to say is that there is a judge. And they say, yes and amen, bring hell, bring fire, bring brimstone, bring the big stick, God. This world is ripe for it. But only we Americans in our suburbs and our Joel Olstein theology... And our sweet little preachers who come to us with their cute little little logos and their cute little little mottos and their cute little churches and preach their cute little 15-minute sermons so we can be at lunch on time. Only we could come up with a God who's not a God of wrath and judgment. Only we. With our white people problems. It's not a Chick-fil-A yet, these Peoria. I'm getting impatient. 
You live anywhere else in this world, let me tell you something. You're going to want a God of judgment. You're going to want hell and fire. You're going to read Revelation every day of the week if they'll give it to you. And you'll read it with delight and you will sing with the angels. Hallelujah, God. You have brought judgment and justice for the martyrs, for the blood of the Lamb, for those who have been oppressed. I like this God who's a judge. Oh, I like him a lot. And you should too. He's going to right all the wrongs in this world, just like he does here in Sodom and Gomorrah as he hears the outcries. And don't bring me this idea about God being, ah, oh, my God's a God of love and not of judgment. Then you don't know the world. You haven't seen the world, man. You have, you have no idea what life is really about yet. Fourteen. So Lot went out, said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. Let me tell you something. I got four daughters. My son-in-laws better listen to me. Can I get an amen? Amen. They better listen up. Because I'm going to say the same thing to them Lot's going to say, but they're going to take me more seriously. Lot says to him, up, get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. (laughs) You know, Lot has no spiritual influence. And why? Because he's been compromising too long. He's been joking around for too long, man. He's been going to work, and they're really impressed with his credentials. They're impressed with his paycheck. They're impressed with the fact that he can bring home the the money and put the milk in the fridge. He's got the nice house. Compare his house to Abraham's tent. I like his house better than Abraham's tent in verse 18. And he's at the gate, and he's got a smart TV, and he's got his Escalade, and he's a leader in the community, and everybody looks to him for business. But when it comes to God things, nobody takes him seriously. You want to know why nobody takes him seriously, including his sons-in-law? This is the first time they've ever heard him talk about God. Did you just bring up God, man? You've got to be joking. Not only does he bring up God, but he says that God's going to destroy the city. They're like, man, he's telling a joke. That lot, he's always so funny. He's always so cynical. He gets me every time. You know, I hope, I pray to God that when I tell my sons-in-law that there's a God, I pray that they'll take me seriously. I pray that when I tell my daughters that I believe in Jesus, they'll take me seriously. I pray that when I tell my neighbor that I love God, that they'll take me seriously. I hope that for you and I, my prayer is that people will realize that we got a lot of important things in our life, our family, our home, our food, our holidays, but the most important thing that we have in our life is God. And when we tell people that, it'll mean something. His influence is so bad, Lot, that nobody takes him seriously. His sons-in-law, ultimately his wife doesn't take him seriously when he says to her, don't look back. 
Don't look back. She looks back, gets turned into a pillar of salt. And finally, when he ends up in a cave filled with fear and defeated, Lot has had such little influence in his daughter's life, in their spiritual life, that when they are desperate to procreate, their solution for life, because they've never heard of any other solutions from their dad, is to get their dad drunk and to procreate off of their own father to where Lot ends up sleeping with his daughters because his daughters get him drunk and he creates children through his daughters who become the Ammonites and the Moabites. You can read about that in verses 30 through 38. Lot is a tragic figure. He's really, really tragic. Lot's trajectory began, go to Genesis chapter 13, and let's watch him slowly descend away from God's purposes for his life. Go to chapter 13 and verse, verses 10 and 11. In verses 10 and 11 of chapter 13, Lot gets rich. He gets money, which for some people is about the worst thing that could happen. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Money's not always good, beloved. There are some real perks to being poor. Of course, if you're poor, there are perks to having a little bit more money. But Genesis 13, 10, it says, or verse 5, pardon me, and Lot Uh, who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents, which is language in the Bible for having a lot of money. Go down to verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Then go to verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And go to chapter 14, verse 12. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. And then when we come to chapter 19 and verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. What's happening to the trajectory is he goes from seeing Sodom at a distance to moving close to Sodom to moving a little bit closer to Sodom, and then finally he moves into Sodom, and then the last step is he's in the gates. He's in the center. He's in the center of its leadership. Slowly but steadily, Lot has walked a little bit further away from the Lord. Slowly but steadily, he's kind of just compromised a little bit more at a time, a little bit more at a time, until at the final chapter here of his life, he's in the gates of Sodom. Going back to Genesis 19, verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, take up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside of the city. I mean, he's still lingering. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? And he said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little one. You know, what, what's happening to Lot? What's happening to Lot is that he's, he's, he's taken so long to earn all this stuff. Why is he lingering? It's because his whole life has been built on building this stuff, on, on building this house, on building and, and getting the, the stuff. And, and he's lingering because he's looking back at his stuff and he's going, I can't leave all this stuff I built. Stuff has a way of affecting your spiritual mind, of, of how you see God. Consumerism has consumed Lot to the point to where he's so urbanized that he can't even live in the hills. He's like, well, just give me a little city. Just give me a little bit of what I had. Just give me Zoar. It's just a little city and a little of what I had before, a little bit of my lifestyle still. I can't live with nothing. Lot and his wife and his daughters, and they all take stuff in the world more seriously than they do God. Do you see that? Do you take stuff more seriously than you do God? Do you take your home more seriously than you do the kingdom? That's the lesson in Sodom and Gomorrah for us believers. Are we going to take the next step in being less double-minded and compromising in how we see the world? It's a tough message. But we need to hear it. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoe. Or a sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. First time brimstone is brought up in the, in the Bible, or as it's written here in our modern translation, sulfur. The last time we hear uh, these same, this same phrase is in Revelation. Go ahead and turn there with me. Revelation 21. Easy to find. It's the last book in the Bible, which lets you know we're near the end. Revelation 21 and verse 8, this is the last time sulfur is brought up. Revelation 21 and verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, 
idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And you could see it as kind of a bookend, you know. I mean, you got, you got brimstone in Genesis, and you got brimstone in Revelation, and everything in between is our decision of what we're going to do with the gospel, and with God, and with truth, and with our sex life, and with our, with our, our, our contentment life, and who our God's going to be, and how many idols are we willing to cast out, and what are we willing to repent of because of this message. And every one of us knows where we struggle. We know where we're weak, and we have the opportunity in this message of brimstone and fire to reevaluate our life and to say, you know what, I think God might be wanting to be taken a little bit more seriously than I've taken him. I think maybe God wants to be the ultimate serious reality in our life. Finishing up Genesis 19, verse 25. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And by the way, if you've ever been there, it's right by the Dead Sea. And that, place, that area is absolutely dead. Nothing even lives in the Dead Sea, that body of water by there. Nothing lives. No fish no life in that, in that sea. It's the most amazing thing. And if you get in there, right, and people go in there, you can't drown because it's so filled with toxin and salt. You literally go up to the top of the water. If you wanted to drown yourself in that water, you couldn't because it's so bad. There is nothing alive in that area. And by the way, archaeologists have found um, a, about the, the Bronze Age uh, three uh, period uh, dating to about 23 50 BC, they have found a uh, cemetery, above ground cemetery, with these little houses where they put their dead and they interred their dead, right? And they, they excavated this cemetery and they think it's Sodom or uh, uh, in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what they found out about this cemetery of homes with dead bodies in it is that it burned down, that it was all turned into ash because of a fire that happened. But here's the interesting thing. When they began to examine these little houses with dead bodies in it in this area, they noted that the fire started from the roofs and not from the ground. And they think that this might belong to this very story in this very area about 2350 B.C. Now, very interesting to note, too, that scientists have come into the area and they said it is possible that they've noted that there was an earthquake at the same time as the fire. And scientifically, what could have happened with the petroleum in the area, the bitumen in the area, the sulfur in the area is that if an if a, if a earthquake happened, it created static, which could shoot up to the sky, create lightning, and lightning would, would set things on fire from, uh, uh, from the sky down to the ground, which happened all the time in this area. So people explain it away naturally. Of course, we're cool with the idea that God would use natural processes to bring about his judgment, right? He is the Lord of the storm. He is sovereignly in control. He could very easily take a natural disaster and make it a, a penal judgment on this society. But make no mistake about it, this sucker happened. This sucker happened. There ain't, nothing, there, there ain't nothing alive there as a result. Verse 26, the last tragedy of Lot's life is that his wife 
again, doesn't take him seriously, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. You know, Jesus talked about in Luke 17, verse 32, probably the second shortest verse in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife is what Jesus said. Don't look back. Verse 27, and Abram, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And we ask ourselves, you know, how did Abraham feel about that? I tell you, he didn't feel very good about it at all. And righteous people don't like human beings getting judged by God. Amen? Abraham had pleaded for these people. Abraham Abraham had prayed that they would be spared of God's justice. And we should be the same way. We shouldn't look on this with any kind of glee or happiness. Righteous people are merciful people. Last verse, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Lot is spared final judgment. And we ask, how can we be delivered from fire and brimstone from God? After all, there's not one of us who hasn't been at one point in time in our life, if not currently, sexually perverted. There's not one of us who has not sinned and compromised and been double standard probably this week. I've been double-minded, I'm sure. There's not one of us who is righteous, not one of us who has perfect spiritual influence, not one of us who's not influenced by materialism, consumerism, stuff, our house, our gate. If God judges because of these things, if he's bringing fire and hell because of sexual immorality or stealing or all of these, how can we be saved? In fact, how was Lot saved? Because in my book, Lot doesn't deserve to be saved. Any man who can't control his son-in-law does not deserve to be saved. Can I get an amen? Lot's not so impressive to me that that God should let him be spared. He should have been burned up with his wife, who was made a pillar of salt. So how is it that Lot was saved by God, and how can you and I be saved by God? Verse 16 tells us it was the mercy of God that saved Lot. God decided to give Lot what he didn't deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is when God looks at you and I and says, Yeah, you deserve judgment, but I'm choosing you as to prioritize you to receive my grace and my love. And the question for you and I is not what are we doing, but have we received the grace and the mercy of God to escape his judgment? Because that is the question. But the second reason why mercy was even possible for Lot is because Lot was saved because God remembered Abraham. Underline verse 29. It's the key verse, I think, in the whole chapter. At least it is for me. 
You see where it says that? Let me read it to you. So it was, and God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered the prayer of Abraham who interceded for his nephew. And let me tell you something. The only way you and I can escape the wrath of God and the final judgment of the Son of Man who will come with the clouds and judge the whole world and all the nations is if God remembers Jesus on our behalf. If you take your Bibles, let me do one more Bible study and then we'll pray. Go to Luke. Go to the Gospel of Luke. I started thinking to myself, man, this might be the whole reason why I've come to Crosspoint. This might be my whole purpose of existence in this church. Might be to tell you this one thing. And if you want to fall asleep and you don't, you get tired of listening to long sermons and you don't want to hear these things anymore, that's all right. I'll fulfill my purpose. You can decide whether you want to fulfill yours. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 and following. These are pearls I'm giving to you, man. Pearls. Jesus is on the cross. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And he cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. The ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. He is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourselves. There's also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I'll be honest with you, I've heard more church members sound like that stupid criminal than I care to admit. Do something for me. There's more consumer Christians coming to God saying, Do something for me if you're so powerful. The other rebuked him and said, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. 
this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Your only hope for going to heaven and escaping the wrath of God is Jesus. Amen? It's not your works. It's not your religion. It's not your perfection. It's not your heterosexuality. It's not your, it's not your politics or your nation. Your flag can't get you into the kingdom of heaven. The only thing that can get you into the kingdom of heaven is if you're willing to come to God and say to everybody else, you know what, we deserve judgment from God. And we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, remember me. That's what I need. I need you to remember me. And then Jesus will give you the assurance, today you will be with me in paradise. But don't confuse your Christianity or your church for anything outside of that death and that promise from Jesus. That's how Lot got saved, and that's how you and I are going to get saved. 